Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's get to our big take story today. It talks about commodities. And you put up the GLCO screen on the Bloomberg Terminal. That's a global commodities page. And there's just a lot of green on there. Commodities on a year-to-day basis up a big time, not just oil. We're talking all kinds of commodities. Megan Derison Albury, agricultural reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us with a big take story today. Talking about the global market for grain, corn, and other commodities amid the Ukraine war. Boy, it seems like the Ukraine situation is really exacerbating what had already been kind of a commodity inflation story. What do you have, Megan? Yeah, that's right. Um, so, you know, ever since Russia's attack began on Ukraine, its ports have been effectively shut. Um, that's where most of its grain would exit, loaded on big cargo ships headed for Asia, Europe, and elsewhere. Um, now, uh, as the top of our story shows, you know, they, they've resorted to transporting some of those crops out by rail. So it's kind of, you know, carving routes that we haven't seen in the past. Um, but granted, that's, you know, pretty slow going. It's expensive. The volumes are much lower than normal and even at the border with the EU um, you know the the train tracks are different sizes so it, uh, between Ukraine and, and Romania for example so it causes a lot of um, challenges for exporters how fungible is wheat um, I mean we I assume farm more than enough wheat and corn in this country um, not to have to worry about uh, any kind of imports from Ukraine halfway acro across the world, um, how come we're seeing huge jumps here for wheat as well? Yeah, so that would be um, true for the U.S. Certainly, you know they're they're pretty self sufficient in grains, um, but you know uh, these really are are global markets, and a country um, like the U.S. or um, like the U EU are you know uh, exporters. So um, if if Ukraine is uh, effectively gone or, or mostly gone from the world markets, um, there's going to need to be alternative or origins stepping up. Um, as our story shows, you know we're already seeing some uh, non traditional players enter the fray as well. Um, for example, India, which uh, typically isn't a, a very big wheat exporter at all, is now selling um, record volumes uh, all across Asia. Um, their their prices are usually uh, kind of uh, too high. Their, their government set prices, but now that the global market has rallied so much, they've become competitive and are joining the fray too. What can the American farmer do? What are we seeing from the American farmer? Are they changing the way uh, they operate these days? Are they planning differently? Are they stepping up production? What are we seeing there? And by the way, Megan, I mean, she's a Sparty. Yes, I know. Yeah, <laughs> um, Michigan State. Yes, I am. So she's from the, uh, the great Midwest. And I mean, I want, you know, is, Ohio is, the is, there an, is there an American farmer? Ohio is the gateway to the West. Okay, thank It's you. the heart of it all. Okay. Uh, is there an American farmer or is it just like large corporations? Oh, there's uh, there's certainly an American farmer too, and just to just to clarify, I'm from Michigan, not from Ohio. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I'm from the great state of Ohio. <laughs> oh, I see, I see. Okay, great. But I appreciate <laughs> you as a Sparty because we both hate U of M. 
that's true. Uh, so, um, yes, yeah, so there certainly is, you know, American farmers. And the, the one challenge uh, with wheat is, you know, um, pretty much in across the northern hemisphere. So here in Europe, where I am, and also in the U.S., most of the wheat is, is sown in autumn. Um, they plant it. It goes dormant for the winter and then starts growing again in the spring. So there's not uh, too much of a chance to really boost wheat plantings at this stage, um, besides in, in the southern hemisphere. Um, but in the U.S. as well, you know, one of the challenges is uh, input costs are really high. Uh, costs for fertilizer have been rising. We saw a USDA plantings report last week that showed um, U.S. farmers are actually going to cut back on corn plantings uh, in favor of, of soybeans. Um, and the extent was kind of a surprise to the market and has, has kept grain prices uh, supported here going forward. So, uh, you know, it, there there is rising crop prices, but farmers are facing challenges on the input side uh, as well. So what is the expectation in the market, Megan, about any output from Ukraine? Is it are we assuming zero? Are we assuming 50 percent? Kind of how are we thinking about that? Um, you know, analyst ranges are, are pretty wide at this point. Uh, it, it's unlikely to be zero. You know, uh, for example, um, the CEO of Kernel was on uh, Bloomberg TV earlier today. He was expecting uh, that Ukraine would produce something like a maximum of 60 million tons of grains and oil seed this year, but that compares to a record over 100 million tons last year. So it is a significant cutback, but the supply, you know, could still be there. Um, the challenge is, you know, there's still obviously uh, a lot of difficulties. I mean, the, the country is at war. There's um, challenges securing diesel, um, fertilizer, you know, with, with occupied land. And um, even depending on what they can harvest this season, the challenge will still be what can they export. Um, you know, Ukraine and, and Russian wheat exports typically accelerate in the middle of the year when the, the next wheat harvest come in. Um, if they can't do that as usual, that's, uh, as our stories ha- had from one analyst, that's kind of when the world's wheat shortfalls could come more into focus. All right, Megan, really good stuff. We appreciate that. Megan Derison Albury, uh, agricultural reporter for Bloomberg News. The big take story uh, talking about the global market for grain, corns, and other commodities amid the Ukraine war, a big, big issue. You can read more Bloomberg Big Take stories at Bloomberg.com slash Big Take or on the terminal at NI Big Take Go. All right, let's talk about this market here. Uh, if you got some fresh money, what are you doing today? Akshata Balkari, equity analyst at Bruderman Asset Management, joins us. Akshata, thanks so much for taking the time here. If I got some fresh equity, maybe I got a little bit of a stimmy check that I haven't spent, where do I put it in the market? Oh, thank you guys for having me on. Uh, I mean, definitely, you know, we still recommend putting your money in the equity market. And for us, we're long-term investors. So we're looking at, you know, if there's a sell-off, you want to look for high quality names and, you know, and those kind of names have had have high earnings visibility and strong underlying secular growth. And a lot of uncertain times we like opportunities in healthcare, especially in like those ones that have really strong underlying secular growth in women's health, uh, such as Organon, which is a, a, a pharmaceutical company that was spun off a mark or Progeny, which is a fertility benefits manager, and as well as managed healthcare, such as United Healthcare that has large scale and, a lot of population uh, enrollment into their Medicare Advantage programs. Can I ask you about the uh, midterm elections? Phil Orlando yesterday from Federated Hermes was telling us that, you know, they expect a good for the markets, not a, not a political commentary, but a good uh, outcome from the midterm elections in that we won't see much um, uh 
we'll, we'll see the government set up so that they can't really do Gridlock. anything. Yeah. Gridlock is good, um, although maybe it's bad for society. But uh, is that does that play into it all, um, your picks? Because it strikes me that depending on the outcome, you could have a very different um, expectation for managed health care. I, I mean, uh, for us, it's like the population dynamics. You know, if more and more people are getting older, you're looking at more people moving into the 65-plus bucket. Um, and those people are going to be starting to be eligible for their Medicare, Medicaid program, and all of those uh, different features. So in managed health care in general, we see a pickup on that end of, you know, the, the entire spending for seniors, 65-plus. Um, as they start to get enrolled into these programs, uh, that, that top-line growth is going to pick up for managed health care companies, and specifically large ones like United Healthcare has that scale, especially with a shift towards value-based care to really take advantage of the large scale that it has to, to reduce its cost over a large number of people that are coming in to into these enrollments overall. We've got earnings coming up. How much does corporate America need to really deliver on the earnings front? What are you going to pay, pay attention to? I mean, yes, yeah, Q1 earnings coming up. You know, companies are able to maintain that growth and their hard margins are really going to be more in focus. Now, according to FACSA, Q1 uh, 22 estimated earnings growth is around 4.7%. And but what we've seen is like it's you know those are you know we're looking at the similar factors. Are they able to maintain um, you know their their growth and and the margins in general? And we've seen that earnings estimates really have been quite resilient despite a number of um, macro headwinds that we've seen and faced recently. There's a, a huge number of them: the inflation uh, and geopolitical risks and, and whatnot. But Earnings estimates combined with dividend yield and stock buy plans do leave a lot of room for positive returns, um, even if there's some level of multiple contractions due to some risks here. Um, so for us, our long-term view on the S&P 500 remains strong with above-average return potential that we see through 2026. What do you think about the big tech companies, the mega-cap uh, tech companies so widely held these days? I mean, you know... As you know, we've seen there's some talk about recession risks uh, coming up with inverted yield curves. Tech is an interesting place to be in. Um, your large market cap uh, companies, you know, especially ones with a lot of uh, subscription-related growth that has that shows that has has so much more visibility, um, like Adobe, for example, uh, tends to have this recurring revenue model that offers that more top-line visibility and it makes it easier to track growth. Um, so that's in Adobe and companies like Amazon have that kind of feature and it's easier to see. So those are still attractive names um, that we feel. So uh, Akshati, we've got WTI crude oil still over $100 a barrel, $103, and it's had such a great move. Has the energy play played out? AZ, again, it's hard to say. Um, you know, we have, there's rising high volatility and sharply high, you know, higher oil prices. Um, you know, going into more uncertain environment. Uh, energy is probably uh, a difficult sector to be in um, with the level of volatility underlying it. Um, that said, again, it's, it's hard to say what's exactly going to be driving it down immediately. But, uh, you know, we have seen the that fact that, you know, these are sharp higher oil prices, you know, but yields are continuing to rise and the Fed is tightening overall. So what we expect is, you know, eventually a supply, you know, supply demand if you kind of ease up a little bit, um, that should come back down. Akshata, thanks so much for joining us. Akshata Belkari, their equity analyst at Bruderman 
asset management. Right now, I want to get over to, I feel like we're connected in some way. I think so. Matt Kramer um, from the National, uh, the National Security Leader, Consumer and Retail, and, and an advisory partner at KPMG, must be from the great state of Ohio. You know, I mean, Matt, I'm just looking through, not only do we have the same first name, but um, <laughs> I'm just looking through all of uh, your experience, and a lot of it centers around the heart of it all. After you graduated from... Uh, Miami of Ohio, you have done so much charity work there. And I just, one question, what is the furniture bank of central Ohio? Yeah, it's, uh, it's no longer a flyover state. Uh, Ohio's, uh, here to stay, but, uh, yeah, I, I, um, (laughs) was on the board at the furniture bank, um, and, uh, many years and, and, uh, great nonprofit organization that uh, serves uh, people that are in need of furniture. And then also currently at uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters. So oh, love uh, cool. connecting in the community. So me- doing a lot of mentoring then, um, which is which is great. Uh, I, I think that kind of hands-on charity work is so rewarding. And a, a furniture bank, I guess, then is like a food bank. So I just thought Absolutely. because you're Absolutely. in finance uh, and you were at the furniture bank, I thought maybe it was like some sort of financial institution, but it's actually um, doing good. Uh, that's fantastic. Um, and you're from Ohio. You must be from Ohio. Absolutely. Yeah. From Ohio. All right. God, go there's two of, two of you guys. guys. Okay. Yeah. It is the Ohio State University. Yeah. Which I don't, <laughs> still don't get. I don't understand that. All right. But so, Matt, talk to us metaphor. about the metaverse. What is it to you? Describe to, to our listeners what the metaverse means to you and maybe, maybe some of the clients that you deal with. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. You know, in, in my sector, consumer and retail, everybody thought, I heard you mention Omni early, being omnipresent, but the omni-channel sure. uh, they thought was maximizing, you know, the digital and online mobile channels. But now we've got this whole new um, stratosphere, Web 3.0 metaverse um, it's actually very exciting for you know brand and marketing enthusiasts and in this sector it creates a whole new opportunity to express your brand and i think for consumers um you actually don't have to be yourself in the metaverse you can uh, be your alter ego you can be whoever you want to be so i think actually it's it's pretty exciting um very broad based and what companies are trying to figure out now is just how do i engage but um Clearly, from our survey, we, we surveyed a thousand consumers. We think that's extremely relevant. Is um, what you're finding is the future generations are most passionate about engaging in the metaverse. We found that um, uh, generations um, Gen Y and Millennials are are very familiar in the mid 80 percent, um, and certainly also um, the people that are that are engaging in the metaverse also found that. Um, being friends um, in the metaverse is about half of the people thought it was just as good as in person, which kind of shocked me. So we're, we're getting some data that's telling us that this um, this is probably going to be on a hockey stick. I, I totally get it. You know, as someone who's play, grown up playing video games um, and for, well, so I moved at a very young age to Berlin and I had friends who from Ohio who had moved to DC and some who were in Paris. And at the time, the Xbox was a new thing Mm. and we couldn't afford to call each other on the phone all the time. So what we did was we all got Xboxes and we could play Halo and, and talk to each other at the same time. That was my first, I think kind of metaverse experience, but now everybody 
or many people have a metaverse experience in that you work from home and you live in kind of Zoom or Nexty or whatever it is. Can we have a, a broader definition of the metaverse? It doesn't have to be this kind of thing where you put on VR goggles and you um, go and play some fantasy game with wizards and goblins, right? Yeah, and that's it's it is the entry point now. I think um, you know people are certainly entering through gaming and through movies. Um, I, I was talking to a CFO the other day, and he was it was a wake up call for him when his um, college age son was home, and he was spending almost daily time with his roommate um, who lived in Chicago and felt like they never left college together. They were engaging on a daily basis. But um, I also think the categories that are going to start to emerge beyond gaming and movies are really telling. In our survey, the next three were education, fitness, and events. So when you think of training and developing talent through um, using you know, AR, VR devices, that's the current mechanism. I don't think that's always going to be the mechanism. Also, just building health and wellness into your culture. I frequently talk to people who are engaging in the metaverse via fitness, um, bike riding, and other activities. Um, and then employees gathering, you know, company-wide meetings, um, certainly departmental meetings. Does it have to be flying across the country and meeting uh, and incurring a lot of costs to do that? Or can it be as effective uh, to meet in the metaverse. All right, Matt, thanks uh, so much for joining us, giving us some thoughts there. As people try to get, figure out what the metaverse is, what it means for them and maybe their businesses, their day-to-day. -day. Dude, uh, you exercise in the metaverse, right? I don't know. You're friends with that famous trainer who shows you how to ride your bike every oh, day. Jen What's Sherman. Jen yeah. Sherman, there sure. you go. Absolutely, I'm a big fan. All right, Matt Kramer, National Sector Leader for Consumer and Retail. He's advisory partner at KPMG talking to his clients and advising his clients on in the consumer space, in the retail space, how to kind of try to adapt the metaverse uh, for their businesses. Uh, I'm not sure I necessarily get it, but I agree with Matt that it is uh, what a lot of future generations are looking at. Wendy Thomas, CEO and president of SecureWorks. That's a NASDAQ traded stock, uh, the ticker's SC as in Charlie WX, uh, Wendy joins us. Wendy, give us, just give us your threat assessment, if you will, of kind of the cybersecurity landscape that we live in now. It seems like we haven't had any major breach recently. What's going on? Absolutely, and, and you're right. Russia's definitely been more constrained than anticipated, and we haven't seen the kind of widespread, really disruptive attacks outside of Ukraine that I think we all either expected or feared yet. What we what we saw was in the days kind of leading up to the physical military invasion, we did definitely see what we call wiper type malware deployed in Ukraine. So so think of malware that wipes data for fast damage versus trying to hold it hostage for a ransom. But none of that malware was particularly sophisticated. Much of it was deployed against a pretty small targeted set of organizations in the Ukraine. Uh, and, of course, there's cyber attacks continue to be directed at the Ukrainian government, both um, with various regional threat groups uh, conducting operations and even some international threat groups, uh, including some suspected Chinese groups, kind of taking an interest there. But the other piece that we that we thought, if you recall, the, the Conti group, they're a large Russian ran ransomware gang, initially talked about, you know, posted early on that they would seek retribution for sanctions that targeted mm. Russia. 
But uh, even then, we haven't seen any notable rise in Russian e-crime activities in recent weeks. Um, in fact, that Conti group was disrupted uh, pretty significantly when their own chat servers and their malware source code was leaked. So while they're not down and out, they keep posting a list of uh, victims to their name and shame leak site. Mm. Definitely uh, put a put a damper on their activities. Well, but you know, uh, we're still at a point where a lot of people think the war could get worse in terms of the kind of artillery that Russia uses. Talk of the possibility of tactical nukes is terrifying. Is it the same? Is the same true in terms of cyber? Uh, warfare is it possible that Russia could pull out the big guns when it really when Putin really feels cornered and what would that look like it is it is absolutely possible and something that frankly we've been preparing for and I think that's why you see so many uh, advisories from the White House right now about advising organizations to be vigilant uh, because while it's quiet right now that could absolutely change rapidly. And if you wait until it starts happening to be prepared, it's, it's obviously too late. Um, what we have seen is that it, it could be that, that the, um, the focus right now around uh, hacktivism is really distracting from the, the sort of U.S.-based companies. We certainly have seen a lot of conversation around retaliation attacks potentially focusing on businesses in the U.S. that, you know, or, or NATO-affiliated um, country organizations, U.K., U.S., that have either withdrawn from Russia or, frankly, from hacktivists that have not withdrawn from Russia. And so the, the, the concern there is not just those organizations, but all of their ecosystem partners, their suppliers that, that can access their systems that, that you're dependent on for your business to run, they can be an easy attack vector for your organization as well. So as, as Russia starts to deploy more sophisticated, potentially, malware for use, uh, e-criminal groups tend to pick those up quickly in Russia and then use those for monetary gain um, against businesses um, globally. When you, what, what do you advise your clients to do in terms of what should they be, how should they be protecting themselves from a cyber uh, perspective? Well, the good news is if you're already pursuing defenses against cyber attacks like ransomware, and I, and I we definitely saw a, a lift in uh, business and activity after the Colonial Pipeline incident, which just raised awareness again, you're already hardening your infrastructure around the same kind of nation-state tradecraft that could fall out from any Russian government cyber actions. So there's a few things that, that we um, talk to boards and executives about quite a bit. Um, that is being brilliant at the basics, because the reality is that, that e-criminals who use nation-state tradecraft, uh, it is all about monetary reward. So if we don't protect ourselves, we keep the cycle going, crime pays, and it just fuels these cyber gangs to continue the attacks. So we talk about being brilliant at the basics really across three things. And the first one is really prioritizing the patches on any of your externally facing systems and, and implementing multi-factor authentication. It's kind of like the doctor tells you to exercise and eat your vegetables. Absolutely need to make sure that, that your exposed systems are 
patched for vulnerabilities. Yeah. The I, second I, one, which... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, people around here talk so much about how much Bitcoin is stolen and somebody you know, had a story saying like, oh man, $2 billion in Bitcoin has been stolen. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, yeah, $600 billion was stolen from U.S. consumers and just phishing and identity theft attacks last year. So, um, you know, dollars uh, to Bitcoins is, is, is a much higher rate of theft. Unfortunately, Wendy, that's all we have time for. So I got to wrap it up, but we'd love to have you back on. So hope you can join us again. Wendy Thomas there, the CEO and president of SecureWorks. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.